chapter 5 in your Bibles. Hope you brought them. Hope you were ready to take notes. Very important message tonight, and um, I think it's going to be heavy for a lot of us because it'll take, I think, a lot of reflection, and it's going to aim a lot of light into our hearts. So if you would, join with me in prayer as as I pray before we start. Father, I want to come to you, Lord, and ask you to bless, Lord, this time as I open your word before your people, God. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless, Lord, this moment with, Lord, a powerful outpouring of your presence in such a way to meet us, to challenge us, Lord. You can peel back our eyelids and cause us to see. You can heal and give eyes to see. You can give ears, Lord. You can raise people from death to life, God. You call into darkness light, and there is light, God. I pray that right now you'd speak to us, God, by your Spirit, that you'd overwhelm us with a sense, Lord, of the urgency to hear, and that you'd give us ears so that we can. I pray that you would get me out of the way, God. I pray that you would cause me to decrease and and Christ to be exalted and to increase. And I pray that you would bless, Lord, tonight the proclamation of your word for the glory of your Son and his kingdom of the world. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 5. Um, so moving away from the Eschaton series on the Sundays to come in and do God the Healer on Sunday is, is, is really, really important because I think everything that is in this series is so totally gospel-saturated, it has to be heard. It has to be heard by those of us that have been brought to Christ out of darkness into light. We've been saved, we've been redeemed and restored, and I know... I know that there are people in here who are among the flock but are not of the flock. I know that there are people who don't know Christ that come to church because God brings you. He directs and orders your steps and you're here tonight. Somebody might have uh, coerced you into coming, locked you next to him in a handcuff or something like that and and brought you here and you're sitting here and you don't really want to be here. And I, I recognize that there are those kinds of things that take place in church. And so this series is fundamental. It's important because it's a series about God. It's a series about God, the healer. It's a series about what God has done in Christ. And this series is not something unique and special. It's not some special twist on things that Pastor Jeff has conjured up. The reality of it is, is that what we are doing is going back to the fundamentals of the faith. Who is God? Who am I? What's wrong? And then what does God do in this cross? Is the cross simply about the death of the Messiah? Is it just that Christ is this wonderful just spectacle of of God's displaying the perfect servant? I mean, there's elements of of that in the cross, of course, that Jesus is this humble servant who, who, who obeys the Father and he humbles himself even to the point of death. You can see those things, but the cross is so much more. It's so much more than just a death of a great, wonderful observation of a, of, a, of a great human that sacrifices himself for the lesser. It's more than that. It's more than God coming to he- down to earth so that you can have your ticket punched for heaven one day. It's much, much, much more than that. You see, the gospel answers everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. The good news speaks to every corner of life. Depression, loneliness, sickness, sadness, despair, murder, lying, strife, clicks backstabbing, everything. The gospel answers everything. It puts underneath those things something that provides 
the reality of those things and then the healing of those things. You see, this, this is very important. And, and in order to understand sort of the basis of the whole series, we have to talk about God. What, what, is, what kind of God is he? What's, he? what's he like? And what's healing all about? And then how do I heal? Let me just specify to you very directly. I'm going I'm to lay it on the table. What's my goal? My goal is this, is that if you're in this room tonight and you don't know Christ, you're on the outskirts. You know who Jesus is. You've heard the story. You know what that means right there. You've, you've seen the movies. You've, you've, you've read the tract or you've seen it on Facebook. What, whatever you know of, of this, maybe Jesus is really just in reality within fingers reach, fingertip reach. He's just right there, but you haven't actually embraced him and come into union with Christ. And so my aim, honestly, is if you're in the room and you don't know him, is that God would open your eyes to the glory and the riches of Christ and knowing God, that salvation and forgiveness would come because you hear the good news. And then he gives you eyes to see, and you come. And for those of you guys that are in Christ, my, my aim is completely to bring glory to God in showing that God's intention in salvation is much, much more than simply heaven one day. It's much more than, than Jesus just being shown as totally awesome and a great teacher and philosopher and moral man. He's much more than that. My goal and aim is to show you that God, when God became man in the person of Christ, he displayed the image of God and what was intended for all of us. And that he not only redeems his people from their sins, but then he conforms him to the true image of God that was intended for all of us. And that means that loneliness should be put to death in the life of the believer. That means that depression and sadness and a lack of joy and a lack of peace and a lack of wholeness are things that God intends very naturally to put to death in what God has accomplished in Christ. He first said to his image. The glory of the gospel answers so much more than simply a ticket for heaven one day. God intends to exalt Christ in the world through healing. And he heals through the gospel. Some of you guys are in this room right now and you've experienced the worst of all tragedies. Some of you guys are in the room right now and I know your backgrounds. You have people in this room that have suffered the worst this world has to offer. Abusive parents, sexual trauma. Some of you guys have been to war and you've seen the ugliest that humanity has to offer in its fallenness. Some of you guys have been addicted to drugs and alcohol. And so you have to say, well, how does the gospel answer that? And we're not coming to God saying, God, I demand you answer. We're saying the glory of God is that he desires to give you that answer. The glory of God is that when God becomes man, he seeks to heal people. Yeah, how, how into healing is this God? Read the Gospels. What did everyone know about Jesus? Is he really seems to like to heal people. And, and, and they knew this was his characteristic. It was so obvious that when he was coming to a town, everyone had heard the stories. Jesus is in town now. Bring all your sick. Bring all the lame. Bring all the... The, the lepers, bring everyone who can't see, everyone who's deaf, and, and they're tearing into the rooftops of houses to bring people down to God as a man because God is the healer. That's what he's like. And so I want to bring you to a story just as a springboard into the series, and that's John chapter 5. So in your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's Jesus' best buddy. And so I love John. If you've never read the Bible before, I want to encourage you guys, start with John. It's phenomenal. Don't just read John, but start there. It's excellent. John chapter 5, I'm going to read you guys this story. You can follow along in your Bibles or you can just listen. 
After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda, in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. That's probably more of an explanation as to what's going on there. Then the first one who had got after the water was stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. It's probably an ancient explanation of what this story is about in the background. But here's the next verse, ready? One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Pause and think through that for a moment. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up. Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now interestingly, listen to the next story. It's, now that day was the Sabbath. Total controversial move. Thanks a lot, Jesus, for stirring up the trouble there. And it's much more than just a, a lesson on Sabbath keeping and everything else, believe me. But in verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. Sabbath police, woo-woo. He replied, the man who made, me, who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, see you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well couple observations. We're not going to do a whole exposition of the passage right now because we have so much more to talk about, but I want us to start with. Here you have this place, this colonnade. People go down and they're sick. People can't walk. They're blind. They're deaf. They're stuck in brokenness. It is simply ugly. And there's multitudes there. I mean, how many? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But there's a lot of people, maybe even in the hundreds of people that are gathered to this place looking for healing. In this pool where apparently people were getting healed. It was this miraculous moment. People were going there to, to maybe get healing. And so there's all these people there. And the interesting thing is that Jesus walks into this mass of people. There's a crowd. All these people are broken and sick. And by his grace, he comes in and he picks one. He comes into one man's life to open up his eyes to Jesus and to heal him, to give him the ability to stand and to walk. But the thing that I think is so interesting to start with the story is just this, because you may be in this room right now and you're thinking like, God is an absentee landlord, I I pray, he's not listening to my prayers, he's too busy, there's a lot of stuff going on in Syria right now, apparently he's more concerned with that, right? There's a lot of stuff going on with my neighbor right now, there's a lot of hospitals and hospice situations. He's really busy with those things. And I want to say from the start, one of the things that's glorious that you have to notice right away from the story is that Jesus isn't so much interested in just the crowd. Where's the crowd? Where's the stuff? He's very much interested in individuals. And so he goes seeking one, not the crowd, but the individual. It's very personal. Jesus is intimately acquainted with pain. And it's interesting how he's seeking them out. Jesus wasn't compelled to go. Nobody asked Jesus to show up. Nobody demanded Jesus, they're sick people, you're the magician, do it. 
Jesus goes because he's seeking, but he wades through the crowd of all these sick people. The crowds are not what, impre- are not what impresses him. He goes to bring glory to himself in the life of one person. Now, I want to say something from the start, too, because you may be thinking, you might be thinking in your mind, because you've had an idol of God in your life, your whole life. That is, he's, not, he's an absentee landlord. He doesn't care. He's too busy. He's not overly concerned with my life. I want to show you, first and foremost, Jesus isn't always into, he's into people, individual persons. He comes to the guy that no one's really paying attention to, who's been there a long time. 38 years he's been like this, and he's been there a lot. And I want to show you that Jesus goes for him. And you may think, well, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe God's not so interested in me. My spiritual life isn't so hot, really, thank you. He knows all about you. Now, the interesting thing to show that is that when the story starts here, you're in the colonnade. Jesus is wading through these crowds of sick people. He finds the man. And the interesting thing is what it says. Six. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Jesus knows all about you. It's interesting. He doesn't go and ask the guy the question. Excuse me, sir, how, how, long, how long have you been sitting here? A lot of people, how long have you been sitting here? Oh, 38 years. 38 years, that's amazing. Jesus goes to him and he knew He's intimately acquainted with all of your ways. He's, he's missing the crowd, pushing past the crowd to find the one, and he knows all about him. And you, you have to pull back for a second, and you've got to release yourself from the clutches of all the idols that we have set up for ourselves in our lives. We've acted like God doesn't know. We've acted like God doesn't care. We've acted like God is the absentee landlord who has sort of set the deal up, and he's off somewhere else dealing with bigger and better issues. He's quite busy, and to be honest, he's kind of sick of you. Right? Am I the only person that thought like that? Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud. You know what I'm saying, though, right? We think like that. The truth is, is that Jesus goes for the person, and he knew all about him before he got there. And I love the question, because it's a question the man is unqualified to answer. You, you think, well, if I'm good enough... Then God's interested in me, and then he really wants to heal me. Well, what's the truth here? Is that this man is one man in a mass of people who are sick and broken. Jesus sought him out, knew all about him when he got to him, and he's totally unqualified. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus heals the guy. Get up! The guy gets up, walks away, and the Bible does not tell us a story, but I'm sure it was pretty stinking awesome. Because when the guy got up, I'm sure he wasn't like, all right. And he like quietly walked away, like, all right, good, go. Like, 38 years, I bet you get up, take your mat, walk. And then Jesus withdraws. This guy was probably freaking out. He was freaking out. Hey, I'm, I'm walking. I'm like, he's probably, you know, he's like doing dances and flipping out. And that's what probably caught the attention of the religious establishment. The ruckus that Jesus started on the Sabbath was a big deal when you got Sabbath police. And here this guy is now taking up his bed, walking around, and they're like, hey, you can't take up your bed. What's up, Jack? Put it down. He's like, hey, the guy that told me, he healed me, he said, take it up and walk. And so I did. Who was it? Who said do that? And everyone's probably like, this is crazy. 38 years, I knew him. 38, I went to, I went to kidney care with this guy. I was in Awanas with him. Straight up, this guy, he couldn't walk. He's walking now. 
And that's what happened. People are probably freaking out. They're like, who was it? He's like, I don't know who it was. He said, take it up and walk. And I walked. <laughs> He's unqualified. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. And he has no faith. Zero faith. There is nothing that is compelling Jesus to this man. Like, there's a lot of faith. I'm going to heal that guy. The rest of these guys, not a lot of faith. Jesus comes to the guy, knows all about him, and he asks him a simple question. Do you want to get made well? Now listen to the answer. It's interesting. Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming down, someone else goes down ahead of me. I love, I love he doesn't even know who is in his very presence. God as a man, is standing there asking him, do you want to be healed? Everyone else is so busy with the shenanigans, the water that's stirred up, there's probably all kinds of, you know, people there sick and whining and crying and everything else. There's probably like, you know, the, the Benny Hens of the day, the faith healers, woo, you know, you know like promising, I mean, who can make caretakers, all kinds of business going on. And here is the one who created all of life who's in control of every molecule in the universe, and he asks him a question, do you want to get made well? And the guy's first response is, uh, sir, um, I've been trying, been here a long time. Apparently you don't know, but I can't walk. And I keep trying to get down to that water, and every time I try to go down, someone gets in front of me. He is unqualified. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He doesn't have faith to contribute. Jesus comes to him, waits through the crowd, goes to the one, do you want to get made well? And the guy is so focused on the external stuff. Well, Jesus, sir, I can't get down to that water. If I can only do that, then I get healed. He's focused on what he can do for the healing. But the amazing thing is, is here's God as a man coming by his grace to the individual, waiting past all the other stuff, and he asks him a question, do you want to be made well? He's unqualified to answer the question. He has no faith to contribute. He has nothing, and he is completely broken. He can't walk. He is in a lesser place than most people in this room right now. He can't even move his body. He is helpless. No faith and no legs. Nothing. All he can do is open his mouth and say, the one thing I can't do is get down there. And then Jesus says to him, as soon as he, as soon as he says it, I love it, Jesus says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And I like how John makes sure you know. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Boom! Just got up. And that's just got to be something that just blows our minds. Be honest, we are jaded to this stuff now. You read your Gospels, you read these stories, and you are jaded to it. You, you read it and you're just like, yeah, I believe it. Sort of. Yeah, he did that, but it was something so murky and in the distant past, I can't really even fathom it. It's a real person with no legs that work. He's got no faith. He's unqualified. He's sick. He's broken. He is nothing. He is helpless to the world. Most people will be just fine with him disappearing. If he disappeared, he didn't even leave a mark in the world. He's a lame, broken person. Nothing to offer the world as far as anyone else is concerned. And Jesus zeroes in on him through the crowd and seeks to heal him. And the amazing thing is, is what happens. 
And this is what I want to get to. What's the purpose of this series? God the healer. Why are we talking about healing? It's not to show that Jesus was a magician or he did some pretty splendid and spectacular things in history. It's to show you that God is the healer, and when he heals, he he intends that that healing leads to holiness. Every time God heals, that's why he heals. Listen to what happens. Verse 12, who is the man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked, but the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Love it. Love it. He's not a show-off. I love it. Jesus goes, get up and walk. Walks out. Everyone's freaking out. Jesus created a serious mess. <laughs> People are freaking out. Religious leadership are indignant and rah, 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 just Sabbath police, Sabbath police. You know, they got the little, you know, little lights on and look around for Jesus. And gone. He didn't even have a frame of reference. Who it was? Who did this to you? I don't know. And now he's in the temple. He's in a completely different place altogether. From the colonnade to the temple, Jesus finds him in the colonnade, heals him, creates a serious mess and scandal, disappears, no idea, and now he's in the temple, and look what happens. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Jesus points out to him what he did. He says, Look, I made you well. You're walking now. But I may, the amazing thing I want us to get about healing in the Bible is that Jesus is not so hateful towards us that he's interested in this momentary healing of your cancer. That he just wants the feat of saying he was responsible for healing your cancer. Or he wants the feat of saying he was responsible for washing away your AIDS. Or he wants to be given glory for the feat of giving you eyes to see again. Jesus points out, you're well. Look, you're well. And then he says, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The amazing thing is when Jesus heals in the scriptures, it's not about just the moment. It's not about just the little boy he raises from the dead. It's not about that magic moment in history where God was here, he did some pretty sweet stuff. When Jesus is healing people, it's aiming towards something better and bigger. He doesn't hate you so much as to heal you for the moment, but leave you to be burned for eternity. Jesus is aimed at healing toward holiness. Whatever healing he offers you, whatever you're here for, whatever he's called you into this room to receive, when he heals you, it's aimed at holiness. He heals the man, and he says, look, look what I've done. It's just a moment, though. Do not sin anymore. It's aimed at something else, something greater. And I'm going to talk real fast about healing in general as signs. Now, this is really, really important. You guys got to really capture this. This is so significant. Jesus is God as a man. Holiness comes to meet the earth where there is unrighteousness. God becomes man. He takes on flesh. He tabernacles. He tents among us, and he touches us. Jesus is so reachable. You can touch him. You can... You can he sympathizes with you. He meets you in your pain. God becomes man, and he experiences all of the ugliness in the world around us. Lies, trauma, abuse, assault, torture, murder, backstabbings, everything. Jesus has tasted every bit of death that you have. All of it. 
There isn't anything you can bring to Jesus that he hasn't tasted, that he can't meet you in. He sympathizes with you. He knows your tests. He knows your trials. Jesus is the God who meets us in this world, and he knows what it's like to be homeless. I love it when people, when I was ministering at a hospital, I had people come to me, I passed Jeff, I don't, God, he sounds great, but when I leave here, I'm going to be homeless. What's he got to say about that? This is the God that I'm telling you about. I'm not talking to you about a God who is far off, who doesn't sympathize with you and your weaknesses. I'm talking about the God who meets homeless people where they're at because he once was homeless. I'm talking about the God who meets people who have lost loved ones where they're at because Jesus was with the people and he lost loved ones and he wept. I'm talking about that God who comes and when he's here, he, he does amazing things. Jesus walks on water. Hear me. Obviously, it's awesome. <laughs> Seriously awesome. Don't, honestly, think about it. If Jesus walked on water in front of you, you'd be freaking out. You would talk about it forever, forever. I bet you Peter could not shut up. <laughs> honestly, can you, can you imagine the bragging rights Peter had? He's like sitting down like Jesus, you know, risen and ascended into heaven. Every single meal, I could picture Peter be like, yeah, but guys, you hear about the time? They're like, we know that you walked on the water with Jesus. He'd be like, you're tripping. Let me tell you the story again. It's awesome. Jesus walks on water. God becomes man and he actually controls the elements to walk across water. And not just that, but other people walk on water. And you know what? He did other things too. A little girl was dead. People are having a funeral and they're wailing and they're screaming and they're crying and the parents are sobbing and it's just a dark, ugly moment. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know exactly what I'm talking about, especially the funeral of a young child. It's an amazing thing. It's a very painful thing. And Jesus walks into that moment and he says to this little girl, he says, little girl, arise. And this little girl who was dead for days arises. She's alive. And Jesus, I love, his little, I love Jesus' heart. He says to this little girl, arise. And then he says to the parents, get her something to eat. <laughs> She's probably hungry. <laughs> I love the heart of Jesus. Little girl, arise. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, did you just... She's alive. And the parents are probably freaking out, squeezing just the guts out of this little girl. <laughs> and Jesus is like, oh, get her something to eat. Get her something to eat. And then another time, Jesus... His, his friend Lazarus is dead, and he's dead for days, and he comes, and everyone's crying, and then Jesus weeps. He says, roll away the stone, and they're like, but Jesus, he's going to smell. He's been in there for days. Jesus, roll away the stone. And Jesus prays, and then he says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus, who's been dead for days, comes hopping out of the tomb with the grave clothes on, and then Jesus raises a man from the dead. He goes up to people, and he gives them eyes. They can't see, and Jesus gives them eyes. Son of David, have mercy. Booyah. Deaf people can hear. Dead people alive. People who are stuck and helpless that cannot move their bodies. And Jesus says, get up. And then they get up. And the amazing thing is, is that charlatans today, religious con artists, I'm talking about the people that you see generally on TBN. Yes, they're charlatan artists. And you know why? Because everything for them was about the momentary miracle. How can we find the momentary miracle? But Jesus was never about the momentary miracle. Every miracle Jesus ever did was not about the instance in history where he gave a man eyes. 
or the instance in history where he raised a dead man to life. When Jesus did a sign, it was pointing to something greater, a greater reality. And this, you have to hear. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, guys, there were very few people present. And you know what's amazing about that miracle? Here's a dead dude that lives again. He comes out, and you know what? To God, it says that some people believed and some didn't. A dead guy rises from the dead, comes out alive, and some people didn't believe. Do we honestly believe that Jesus, God become man, walks among us to raise a guy from the dead 2,000 years ago for that moment? It was just about the fact that Jesus raised a guy, Lazarus, from the dead? Or is the sign pointing to something greater that God, as a man, has the power to raise dead people to life? When he goes to a little girl, that was a sign. Little girl, arise. They're supposed to all see in that, not just the moment that Jesus raises dead people, but Jesus is the one who holds all of life. He is the light of the world. In him is life. And when he calls into darkness, light, there is light. And when he calls into death, life, there is life. And at the end of history, Jesus will call out into the world after he has subdued all of his enemies. He will say, rise, and everybody will rise. Jesus has the power to bring life out of death. And the true nature of the situation was not so much Lazarus's death. Because you know what? Lazarus died again. First of all, I am very curious as to what kind of conversations happened with Lazarus when he was raised. I mean, I'd be, I'd be like, all right, everyone out of the way. I might ask some questions, okay? You were dead for four days. What was it like? What did you see? What was there? Who talked to? What happened? Seriously. But the crazy thing is, is Lazarus died, and then he died again. So the miracle was not just about Lazarus being raised from the dead or the little girl being raised from the dead because they died again, and they stayed dead. Jesus in his ministry was displaying who he was. The sign was pointing to something greater. It's not that Jesus could give resuscitation to a dead body so that it walks again, it, it's animated again. It's that Jesus is displaying just who he is and what he can do. Jesus is more powerful than just raising a dead man to life. He does something even greater. He takes dead sinners and he raises them to life now. When Jesus was giving blind people eyes, it wasn't just that Jesus has power to give people eyes. It was that blind people can't see, and he can make them see. And guess what? The true nature of the situation is that every single one of you is lame, blind, before Jesus raises you, gives you eyes, ears, a new heart, and legs to walk again. That's the truth. The God that heals is about the sign pointing to something greater. It's not about the momentary. God may have decreed your cancer for his glory and your good. And he may not heal you from it because his interest is in something deeper, more transcendent. It's not simply the cancer that God would go, oh, now I'm really glorified. The cancer is gone because you're going to die again like Lazarus. You're going to get something else again. Jesus is interested in something greater. The real sickness is sin, and its consequences are much greater than cancer. They're much greater than HIV. They're much greater than the flu. They're much greater than all those things. 
Sin has consequences that last for eternity. And when Jesus came, he was interested in seeking and saving that which was lost and to redeeming his people. And that is something that is far greater, reaches far deeper than a simple moment in time where Jesus does something spectacular like giving somebody eyes to see. Listen, when you go and you're driving down the road and you see a stop sign, the stop sign is not the thing. The stop sign is a visual symbol, a sign greater. The sign itself is telling you something more transcendent and deeper than just the metal, the screws, and everything else. Or when you're driving down the road in a, in a, in a school zone and you see the sign with the little kids walking across the road, that is pointing to a greater reality that you have to slow down. And the miracles that Jesus performs in the New Testament, what God does is he performs these signs to point to the greater realities. Lazarus, come forth. He's alive. Everyone's supposed to see. Jesus raises the dead. Eyes, now you can see. Ears, and now you can hear. The sign is not the thing. Don't dwell on the sign. It's what the sign is pointing you to. You have to see that. Can Jesus heal sick people today? Yes. Yes. But you know what? That's not as special and as glorious and as eternal as Jesus giving somebody who is spiritually blind eyes to see. Because the eyes he gives you to see him, they will never go dim again. And the ears that he gives you to hear him will always listen to his voice and come. And the heart that he removes of stone from you and gives you a soft heart towards him will always remain malleable to God, no matter how hard your life is, no matter how much you screw it up. And when Jesus gives dead people life, that is life eternal. Do you see? So we need to talk about the image of God. Why would we do that? Because I want to say this, when Jesus, who is God as man, walks among us, he is the perfect image of God. Adam in the garden was to be the image of God to the world. And when Jesus comes, he comes as the second Adam, the perfect Adam. Everything God intended for Adam to be in his image, Jesus truly is. But what's the problem? You see, you have to start at the beginning. In order to understand things like loneliness and death and sickness and sorrow and disease and peace, anxiety and fear of the future, the fact that we're all idolaters and we seek pleasure elsewhere, we go to the heroin for pleasure, to the weed for pleasure, the ecstasy, whatever. In order to understand that, you have to understand just what happened in the garden and who we are. We talk about it all the time, right? It's Christianese. It's part of our ghetto language, right? Image of God. And we say it. Because it's fun to say. Image of God, right? Sounds Imago Dei. That sounds even better. I just upped it a bit, right? <laughs> image of God is awesome. Imago Dei, that's better. Because it's Latin. And Latin's always better. <laughs> image of God. What does it mean to be the image of God? God creates. He is eternal. He is the first and last. He is the first and best of beings. He has always existed. No one made him. No one nudged him. He's always existed thing in no end. He is the one who is. He is the I, Holy One, the Righteous One. He is love 
Not loving only. He is love. By very nature, he is love. He is perfect. He is artist. He is poet. God is the original everything. All knowledge resides in him. All you and I think, we're only thinking God's thoughts after him. Every time you think you know something, you are just catching up with him, kind of. And when God created us in the garden, he created us in the garden different than everything else. He creates monkeys, baboons, giraffes, which are stinking awesome. He creates Saturn and Mars. He creates mountains and oceans. He creates rivers and streams. He creates every creature crawling on the ground and every bird flying in the sky. Awesome. And then he comes and he does something very special with us. In humanity, he does something he doesn't do with anything else, and that is that he breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. He creates Adam as his image. And let me just say something very important. When God created Adam in his image, it did not mean that God created Adam looking like him. And what that means is this. God didn't create Adam with fingers and toes like he had. Or a chest similar to the size of God's chest. Or hair like God. Do you see, when God created Adam in the garden in his image, it means that he created Adam reflecting attributes that he has. He made Adam in the world as his image to reflect into the world his glory. So we are like God in that he has community he has given to us. And listen, you are not, you are not an ape. You're like, obviously, no, not so obviously today in this culture. Our culture prizes the fact that they are apes. African apes, actually, as Richard Dawkins would say. You are not an ape. You are in the image of God, and you reflect things about your creator that no ape will ever be able to do, no matter how many thousands of years or millions of years you give it. It is not to look like God with fingers and hair and toes, male parts, shoulders, head, nose. The image of God is something different, and this is what the mirror is for. We're not to think of the image of God like God simply stamped an exact replica of himself in the garden. There, that looks like me. To be in the image of God is something far different. We reflect into the world God's likeness, his image, what he is like. And so it's not that God simply stamps into you a picture of what he looks like. It's that God has reflected into the world what he is like through his image bearers. And he intended Adam and Eve to reflect into the world his glory, what he's like. When Adam and Eve were acting like artists, they were reflecting the original artist. When Adam and Eve were loving one another, they were reflecting the one who is in very nature love. When Adam and Eve were kind to one another, they were reflecting an attribute of God. Everything they did was to reflect into the world God's very nature and glory and character. That and so I want to show you with a mirror how that was supposed to look. God is light. This is going to fall short in some ways because God is transcendent and he's limitless and all of these different explanations of God are going to fall short in some way. But here's at least a way. When you look at a mirror, you look at a mirror of yourself, you see an image of yourself. But we're not to think of image of God in that way, that God was sort of creating in the world an image that looked like him. 
It's that when God created Adam and Eve, he was creating image bearers to reflect what he's like back into the world. When you flash a light into a mirror, that light, of course, hits the mirror. But it's what the mirror is doing now. It's reflecting back out of the mirror the nature of the light, the essence of the light. And so when God created Adam and Eve, he was stamping into Adam and Eve his image so that Adam and Eve would reflect him back into the world. Adam and Eve were to be his image in the world, to shout into the world exactly what the Creator was like, who he is. That is something that apes don't do, giraffes don't do, monkeys don't do, ants don't do. You and I do. You can turn that back on now. To be in the image of God is much bigger, it's much better, it's much more beautiful and more transcendent than simple stuff that God put into you to look like his image. Adam and Eve were to reflect into the world what God is truly like. They were to be like God in all those ways. Another, I want to get to a story of Jesus talking about image of God because I want you to hear it. Go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. It's a famous story. You already know it, but I just want you to look at your Bibles to capture it. Matthew 22. It, the, the verse is starting at verse 15 through 22. But... We'll start in verse 18. You know the story. Jesus, should we pay taxes? Controversial question. They're trying to trip Jesus up. They're trying to show that this guy who's calling himself king is going to show himself in opposition to Caesar, and if we could trip him up by making him say he's fomenting revolution, he wants you to stop paying taxes to Caesar, then we can get this guy nabbed. His whole movement's over. Jesus is God. He searches their hearts. He knows what they're doing. You're nuts to go toe-to-toe with Jesus. Don't do that. Don't do that. But look what Jesus does. Verse 18, but perceiving their malice, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Whose image And inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, therefore give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, obviously. (laughs) So they left him and went away. You have a coin. And it has an image. Who's that? George Washington. George Washington was the bomb diggity. He really was. George Washington was a man. Loved God, was a Christian you should read the story of George Washington and his inauguration. It's an amazing thing. He made everyone go to church as part of the inauguration and worship and then come back and dismiss. He kissed the Bible in his inauguration. He did that. Amazing. But there's an image in our coin, George Washington. And what's interesting here is that Jesus uses this example of a coin in the day, the denarius, with the image of Caesar. So we know what that's like because we have the same thing today. And what Jesus does, he says, show me the denarius. Whose image, whose inscription is there? And they're like, well, that's, that's Caesar. And so Jesus, interestingly, says, all right, that's his image stamped there. 
Yes. So you give that to him, and you give God to what's, what, what belongs to God. And that's amazing, because Jesus is saying, whose image is that? Then give it to who it belongs to. Whose image are you? Give it to who it belongs to. And so what's amazing here is that Jesus is relating. Now that image reflects back into the world something that, that belongs to someone. That's Caesar's. And he says, how about you? Whose image is stamped in you? And you're supposed to say, well, that's, that's God's image stamped in me. And Jesus says, right. So give to God what belongs to him. And that is you. Listen, when God created... He created for the purposes of bringing glory to himself. Did you know that it was not just about us? (laughs) It's not just about us. It's not about you and simply your needs and likes and your quirky personality or whatever. You were created by God as his image bearer. And guess what Jesus is showing there? That image belongs to him. Your image is his. It belongs to him. And guess what? You belong to God. And God is saying this. He intends for all of humanity who all bear his stamp, his image in them. He is demanding that they appropriately live out his life into the world. And when he calls people to account at the last day, it's not simply that God is capricious lawgiver saying, well, today we'll say this law or that law. He's saying to unbelievers at the last day, you're in my image. You were created to reflect my glory into the world. You are a liar. I am no liar. And therefore you'll be punished because my image belongs to me. And you did not reflect it into the world. You lived disharmoniously sexually. I am not that way. And you reflected into the world a marred image that I will hold you accountable for. When you behaved in this way, you distorted my image in the world. You fell short of my glory. There's more to image of God than we thought. And I want to say something very, very important here about image of God. God, when he creates us, we're in his image and we fell. But I want to say something very important that should encourage you. This is it. When God created you and I, humanity, I should say, in his image and we fell, that image was not lost. It's not lost. You could be the hardest unbeliever in the world. You could straight up hate God, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, every other atheist that's militant and pompous in the world. You can hate God all you want. You can war against him all you want. You will never, ever cease being his image in his world. It's impossible. It's impossible to be God's image in his world and not reflect it in some way. You can suppress it and try to hide it, but guess what? If you take a coin and you throw it in the mud... You have not erased the image. You have made it messy and ugly, but the image is still there behind the ugliness. And in humanity, what's amazing is all the fallenness we see around us, all the sadness, the despair, all the lies and the hate and the ugliness, all the drug and alcohol addiction, all the sexual immorality and brokenness, all of the pain and the loss, and the loneliness, and the sadness, and the everything in the world. 
that displays that is that image of God marred in us. What do we do? We're made in His image to reflect to Him His glory. We're the creatures made by the Creator to love Him, to know Him, to worship Him. But our image is broken and marred and cracked and fractured and we're fallen and we're rebels against Him. And it's madness. It's madness. The Bible says the result in Romans chapter 1 of the fall is very, very dark. It says that people know Him, Romans chapter 1, 18, but they suppress the truth about Him. They hide. They're stuffing Him down. Hide the truth. Hide the truth. We're in a constant pattern of whack-a-mole. They're coming up. They're coming up. They're coming. We're hitting one, hitting one, and another one's popping them over here. It's a whole life of suppression, trying to knock down the image of God coming up in us. I hate whack-a-mole. <laughs> and I cheat, by the way. And we do. Our whole lives as image bearers in the fall, we all hide God. We suppress God. The truth rises up and we push it back down in unrighteousness. And it says that that which is known about God is evident within them for God has made it evident to them. It says that God has sent the message of himself into every single one of us. And it says in Romans chapter 1, so that they are unapologetous. They are without a defense before him. No one will ever stand before God and say, I didn't know. I needed more information. What about that evidence over there, God? What about this over here? It says that all of humanity know him so much. It is so clear, so obvious that everybody stands before God at the last day and they are unapologetous without an apologia defense before God. They know him. And it says what they do as image bearers of God who are fallen is they go off into futile thoughts. They profess to be wise, Romans 1 says, but they become fools. And it says they exchange the glory of the immortal God for an image. And that's madness. Image bearers of God made to reflect the glory of God into the world, suppress the truth about God, and they start switching God for idols. They say, not the creator, the creatures instead. I won't glory in you, God. I won't seek you for peace. I won't seek you for freedom from loneliness and pain and depression and sadness. I won't seek you for joy and pleasure. I will switch you for bootleg pleasure, bootleg joy, false peace elsewhere. And we do it in a number of different ways. People as image bearers of God with brokenness switch God in a million ways. How do you do it? Well, we do it in religion, don't we? I don't want God as he's revealed him, kind of a half a God. I want a God where I've sort of like, you know, I've taken a couple different ideas from different religions. I've hooked them up, made them bedfellows together, made sort of a really cool God that I can, I can really relate to and I can really like. We do that a lot. I've sat down with people, I've said to them, AA context, I've said, so you have a higher power? Now, obviously, I already know who God is. He's the higher power, whether they know it or not. So like, who's your higher power? And they're like, I'm working on it. You, you, I'm so, you're working on it? Yeah, I'm working on it. How are you doing that? Well, I'm, I'm, th I'm sort of like deciding like how I want, you know, I'm just sort of like thinking, it, I'm pulling things from this religion, this idea, that. I'm like, um, do you think you've shown yourself responsible the last 32 years of your life? A lot of clear thought going on. And you think you're going to create a God? You will be successful. Yes, you will. You will make a God in your image. That's the truth. Religion does it. We know God. We suppress the truth. We don't want God, so we switch God for an idol. We go off into false man-made religions. We create cathedrals, chapels, different religious texts. We have false prophets and charlatans and con artists. And why? It's not because God is not clear. It's because when he reflects light to us, we say no to the light, and we go off into darkness instead. 
We don't want the true God, kind of like Him, but it's not quite Him because we hate Him. That's the truth. But someone says, well, Jeff, I've never done that. I've been raised in church my whole life. I was in Awanis, went to youth group. I did the whole deal, Jeff. Been church my whole life. Parents are Christians. I'm not an idolater. I've never done false religion. I, I've never been part of the Mormon church. Never. Never. Never did it. Never bowed down before an idol. Never happened. Really? So when you've needed peace in your life, do you understand that when you've needed peace in your life, you've needed peace because you're in His image and it says that God is the God of peace? You wonder why you seek it? You wonder why you've sought peace in your life. Why do you want peace so desperately in your life? It's because God is the God of peace. Let me ask you, when you've needed peace in your life, did you always go to God for it? When you needed it today, did you go to God for it when you needed peace today? Did you do it? Or did you try to find peace elsewhere? Have you ever done that? Have you ever needed peace and not gone to God but gone somewhere else? Have you ever needed joy, pleasure, and not gone to God, but God somewhere else? Don't you see? You're in His image. You are made to reflect God into the world. You're made to find those things in God because that's where they rest. God is the God of peace. He intends you to come to Him for peace and to reflect that into the world. He is the God where there is true joy and true pleasure. It says in Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. But we are so fallen and our image so marred that we have sought bootleg pleasure and bootleg joy in place of lasting and everlasting joy and pleasure. We have sought it out elsewhere. That's the truth. What we've done with that image it's broken. And when those needs have arisen in us as image bearers of God, we are such rebels and we hate God so much in our own fallenness that we switch God for an idol. We distort it. It's all over our lives. And I, I want to suggest to us something as we come to a close here in the series. When Jesus comes into the world, God as man. Adam blew it. He was a covenant breaker. And all of us show every single day that he was our daddy because we've run all of our lives from him. But when God becomes a man in the person of Christ, God now had his image in humanity walking among us. And everything you see in Jesus is the perfect image of God. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, He is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. That has so much weight to it. Jesus is the image of God in the world. When Jesus needed peace and pleasure, He only went to the Father. When Jesus ever would have had to suffer under loneliness and despair, he went to be alone with the Father. When Jesus was attacked and felt pain, he was dependent upon the Father. He never switched God for an idol. And what do you see in Jesus' life? Love. Perfect, perfect, harmonious hatred for sin. What do you see in his life? An unparalleled, godly, righteous wisdom. He is the perfect image of God. And I want to say something to the Christians in the room, those who know God. You've been saved. 
And it's amazing. We think somehow like God saves us, and all of a sudden, like by osmosis or something, we're like, all of a sudden, good. Let me suggest something to you. Two things. Number one, you're not good. Number two, you are good and righteous in him through faith, and that's permanent. But let's stick with the first one real fast. You are not okay. You are righteous in God's eyes. You have peace. There is nothing left to be done. You have peace. You stand in grace. You will never lose your standing with him. You have eternal life. You're in Christ. You are clothed in him. As far as God is concerned, judicially, you're good forever and ever. But practically speaking, you and I have carried into this relationship with Jesus all kinds of baggage, all kinds of baggage. You and I have sought out so many devices in our lives. We are so used to switching God for idols. It's just what we do. When we need peace, we've had a pattern as to how we've sought that peace. And so we come into a relationship with Jesus. Magically, that disappears. No, you're saved now. He gives you a new heart and you're redeemed and forgiven. And it says so clearly in Colossians chapter 3 that God's intention is to conform you to that image of Christ. He's not done with you and never will be. Listen closely, Christians in the room. You and I are on a path to the image of Christ, and I want you to see it. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to end here. Yeah.